This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Do you believe there's a part of yourself that you don't show anybody? When I'm inside, I get to see those things. I feel them. These girls were kidnapped, tortured, and murdered. Our killer is a white male. Carl Rudolph Starker got a license for a dog, though, named him Valentine. He's not just catatonic. He's disappeared. Like having a dream and never waking up. How long? Oh, forever. Now this thing is fully automated. And unless we find her by tonight, this will happen. Is it possible? If you came to trust me, yes. Mind over matter. We are about to see how medical technology is redefining the meaning of those words. Canadian researchers say they found an inexpensive way to detect awareness in people who were thought to be in a vegetative state. At that time in history, you know, nobody thought it was a good idea to put a vegetative patient in a scanner because, I mean, put simply, people assumed that there was nothing going on. Uh, there would be no evidence of any brain activity. This gentleman is the catalyst. The neurological synaptic transfer system not only maps the mind, it sends the signal to another party. All you need to do is tune in. Using a scanner like this, scientists reached into the mind of a man who'd been in a vegetative state for five years and communicated with him via his thoughts. Everybody listening to this will, at some point in their life, I'm sure, have said, if I ever end up in that situation, you know, pull the plug. And what we are trying to do here is to, to make sure that that is never done in error. Tell them to prep them. I'll be right there. Hello and welcome to Science-ish. I'm Rick Edwards, joined as ever by my sidekick, my lovely assistant, Dr. Michael Brooks. I am not even taking that. No, 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 no. Which one aren't you taking? Just pick. Either of them. Sidekick or no, lovely assistant. No, co-presenter I'll take. Co-presenter? Yeah. You're mad. I know you talk a lot, but I'm <laughs> yes, the brains of the operation. <laughs> I was going to say, actually, that there's something slightly disappointing about you being like a doctor of quantum physics 
and that being theoretically very impressive, and I've read your books, and they're very good, and then meeting you, just sort of, <laughs> just so unimpressive in the flesh. Well, do you know what? I used to watch T4. <laughs> Thank you very much. Let's just stop Let's that conversation there. right yeah. there. <laughs> Enough of that. The show, this, that you're listening to, Science-ish, you will know the format by now, but I'll remind you, we take one work of fiction and then we ask one question, scientific-based, obviously, to one scientist and then we chat about it and we try and answer the question. This week, Brooksy, you are at the helm. What have you uh, adjusted your laser sights on? So we're going to look at the cell. 2000 film, Jennifer Lopez, Vince Vaughn, terribly... Well, not, I was going to say miscast, but they just shouldn't even have been cast in it. I just, I don't agree. I think Vince Vaughn is good in it, and I think J-Lo is fine. I think Vince Vaughn's a clown. Um, Vince Vaughn's not a clown. He is a clown. He's incredibly watchable. Anyway, so, uh, yeah, but it raises really interesting questions. It's a good film. I mean, don't get me wrong. It, it's I, th- really I haven't good watched film. it in 15 years, and I really enjoyed it. It's visually incredible. Yeah, the director's done an amazing job just sort of rendering all this stuff. It starts with this amazing desert scene where J-Lo's sort of riding a horse through the desert. And at first I thought, hold on, have I downloaded the wrong film? Yeah, it's quite out there. It's really unusual. So do you want to do a quick sort of plot rundown? Yeah, so basically, J-Lo is a child psychologist who's working with an 11-year-old boy who's in a coma because he he got some virus and he happens to be the son of billionaires and they're trying this sort of new technique where she tries to reach him by doing something they're calling synaptic transfer Mm -hmm. where they both lie in this sort of suspended cell effectively. They sort of remove all bodily sensation. They're in these special suits and then their brain... Very naughty, ribbed latex red suits. Yeah, yeah, it's not bad. And she enters his mind effectively and goes and visits him and tries to sort of get out you know what he's thinking what's going on inside his head not sure that's the best plot summary it's fine i mean if, if you want to leave it at that i mean that's not the bulk of the film how, is it? okay how long do i want to go on for so basically what happens in the end is that there is a, a serial killer on the right loose. Mm-hmm. yeah i suppose this is the main thing i mean yes, for me i was just interested in the science of synaptic mm-hmm. transfer mm. obviously there's a serial killer who's abducting young women and drowning them slowly gradually and but he himself has a seizure and they can't find the latest victim unless they can get inside his head. Uh-huh. So, so the clock is ticking, and so all kinds of shenanigans then go on inside the serial killer's head, which is, again, really interesting and, and kind of a bit mad. Yeah, I would say a lot mad. Yeah, yeah. Horrible mind. Wouldn't want to go in his mind. No. I don't think. With Starger, I felt things I never want to feel again. He's not even Carl Starger anymore. He's this idealized version of himself, a king in a very, very twisted kingdom. Naughty world. A place for him to indulge every... You know, I don't want to talk about this in here. And so the question we're asking is, can we communicate with someone in a coma? Yeah, which is a really interesting question. And have we pinned down an absolute legend to help us answer this? Do you know what? We've only got Dr. Adrian Owen cognitive neuroscientist at Western University in Canada and basically the first guy to establish that we might be able to do this. He is the don of this stuff. I first became involved in this field in 1997 when I encountered uh, a young patient uh, in Cambridge in the UK. Her name was Kate. She was in a vegetative state and had been that way for some months. And at that time in history, you know, nobody thought it was a good idea to put a vegetative patient in a scanner because, I mean, put simply, people 
assumed that there was nothing going on. Uh, there would be no evidence of any brain activity. We put Kate into a, a PET scan, a positron emission tomography scanner, and we showed her pictures of her friends and family. And the part of her brain that we know is involved in recognizing faces lit up in exactly the same way that your or my brain would, would respond under those same circumstances. And that was the first evidence, almost 20 years ago, that was the first evidence that any of us had that some of these patients weren't what they appeared to be. I guess the real turning point for us came in in 2006 and that's where we really realized that to truly understand what situation these patients were in we'd have to get one of them to voluntarily activate their brain and we we put again a vegetative state patient into the scanner uh, and we asked her to imagine that she was moving her arms around as if she were playing a game of tennis and the interesting thing about this is that when we asked her to do that her premotor cortex lit up in exactly the same way that we'd seen many times before in healthy participants. And importantly, she could switch it on and off whenever we asked her to. When we said stop imagining playing tennis, activity in that area would disappear. Then we'd say, well, start again, and it would come back on. And this was how we realized, in fact, that she was not in a vegetative state at all. She was, she was in there. She could understand the instructions we were giving her, and she could even carry out an action. Not an action with her body, of course, but, a, but an action with her brain. So before we get stuck into this, can you give me a quick sort of whistle-stop tour of some of the terms? Because I think I get a bit confused between coma, vegetative state like minimally conscious state. Yeah. What's the other one? Locked in, locked in, locked in syndrome. syndrome. What are the differences? So we use coma sort of as this real catch-all, which is a bit of a, a problem. Coma's like an umbrella. It's term, what everyone it? says, is, oh, they've gone into a coma. Okay. And actually, you know... But there's various different... Yeah, so a coma is actually when your your eyes are closed, there's no sort of brain activity in terms of like waking, sleeping cycles. It's just flat. There's no sort of movement, no response to anything at all. And usually that only lasts like a couple of weeks, maybe a month or something like that. And then you either wake up or you slip into a vegetative state, which is where actually your eyes can be open. Um, your brain has kind of kicked into the point where you have sleep and waking cycles. So in a vegetative state, you can look around a room, although you won't be sort of doing it on command, but your eye, there'll be like random eye movements and things and uh, even occasional movements of limbs and stuff like that. So that's, there's a sort of big difference. So coma's nothing, effectively. Yeah, yeah. Just, just the body running at an absolute minimum. minimum. And then vegetative state, that's sort of the thing that most people, if they're in that state, will then stay in. Mm -hmm. Locked in is when you've got perfect cognitive function, but you just can't move your limbs, you can't do anything. So you might have a slight, slight tick in the cheek or something you can move or, or an eye that you can blink or something like that. But basically, you can't move limbs. And then minimally conscious is just when you've got the sort of very little function going on at all, but you're still sort of showing some kind of responsiveness. The sort of spectrum then, is it, of states? Yeah, yeah. Fairly continuous or are they discrete? So a doctor will make a diagnosis on the basis of what they can see and observe and carry out various tests. They might sort of, you know, say, follow the pencil and if the eyes are open and the eyes don't follow the pencil moving around the room. So mm -hmm. you'd say, okay, well, that's a vegetative state. So you right. sort of make this diagnosis of one or the other or the other. But most people don't get their brains scanned, so you don't actually know what's going on inside. And so that's the point that Dr. Adrian was making is that these patients he's talking talking about are being written off as being in yeah, a vegetative yeah. state yeah. 
and actually they're not. You know, all that thing about, you know, when you've said, oh, if I ever go into a coma, that would be it. It's like, don't don't think that. Listen for the next half hour or so and you'll change your mind completely. So what would Dr. Adrian classify their level of consciousness as well, these he, patients? So he sort of talks about the grey zone. He's got this book out about the grey zone of consciousness. Getting away from this idea that scientists have defined it all and worked it all out and saying, no, we really haven't. We mm-hmm. basically aren't using all the tools at our disposal to find out what's really going on with these people. We've got 6,000 people in the UK, roughly, at any one time, who are in a permanent so-called vegetative state. That's quite a lot of people that we might be sort of writing off. Has Dr Adrian come to a conclusion, then, about whether these, in inverted commas, vegetative state patients, some of them are actually conscious? His conclusion at the moment is that about 20% of them are conscious Mm -hmm. through various tests that he does. That's probably quite a conservative estimate. You know, when they've done this thing, they've done various sort of uh, different tests on them, they, they sort of ask them to imagine various things. But actually what he's found is that one in four healthy people really have problems sort of imagining these things. And so they don't produce the the, the sort of brain response that you'd expect them to. So that, And that's normal people. So the chances so are there might be more... Might be missing these, some yeah, people yeah, who so. are in some kind of consciousness grey zone, but also just unable to yeah. make their brain light up because <laughs> trying, they wouldn't be able to do it imagine under the best of circumstances. They're trying really, really hard to do this for yeah, in their yeah. life. It's like, I really, really need to imagine myself playing tennis. <laughs> I just can't. I just, I just can't, can't do, do it. it. <laughs> He loves it when you visit. My husband wonders if that's true. He wants to place Edward in a hospital. We've waited uh, 18 months for signs of progress. There has been progress. There's no proof, Catherine. There's no proof the procedure works. All you're giving me is the belief that your interaction with my son is not a hallucination. Do we have a rigorous test for determining consciousness? We do. And and Adrian Owen got told off quite a lot when he first sort of said Kate Bainbridge seems to be conscious. You know, people said, How can you possibly, you know, make that conclusion from the you know the, the results that you've got? But actually, you know, when she eventually woke up years later and got back in touch with him and she was definitely conscious. She sort of remembers all this. She said it was like being found. What's the technique that he's using? Cool. Kate Bainbridge was this uh, PET, positron emission tomography. And other techniques he's used are functional magnetic resonance imaging, fMRI, mm-hmm. and also EEG, just electroencephalography. All just to measure brain activity. Yeah, they're trying to measure brain activity. EEG is much more surface than fMRI. So fMRI, you can go a bit deeper and a bit more accurate and kind of mm-hmm. really hone down on which particular areas are lighting up where the blood flow is increased. So the trouble is that you know you can't imagine being able to develop an fMRI scanner that you could take home and you know people use when we've got thousands of people in these kinds of states. Yeah, but actually, would it be that difficult to every person who you thought was in a vegetative state, they're going to be in a hospital, presumably, just whack them into the scanner for half a day, do some, is it called command follow? Yeah. So you just sort of say, imagine yourself playing tennis, see if they can, and then, you know stick some of them in the conscious room and then, and then some of them in the unconscious room. I'm sorry, you failed. Yeah, yeah, unlucky. <laughs> Inside, they're like, no, no, I can imagine playing something else. <laughs> I've never played tennis. Football, give me football. <laughs> and so so with Command Follow, obviously they can't move their, their limbs, so you're looking for activity in the brain centre that would be operating 
those yeah. limb movements. Yeah. Is that right? Yeah. And actually, uh, this, is, this is what enables you to you know, think that actually you might be able to communicate. Once we knew that we could find some of these patients by getting them to imagine playing tennis, it was a, a relatively easy move to get some of them to communicate with us. To do that, we just used two tasks. We'd ask a patient to imagine playing tennis if the answer they were trying to convey was a yes, and to imagine walking from room to room in their home if the answer they were trying to convey was a no. And that's because imagining walking around a familiar environment produces a very different pattern of brain activity to imagining uh, playing tennis. And in that way, we could get patients to answer yes and no questions. We would just, you know, ask a question like, are you in pain? Uh, and they would imagine playing tennis if the answer is yes, and imagine moving around the house if the answer is no. And it was surprisingly effective and has been so in, in, in many patients to date. This is huge, in a way, because it has to change the way that we treat these patients. Yeah. So like, totally. Yeah, they're completely passive, aren't they? I mean, yeah. yeah, we treat them as objects, effectively. Just say to the family, what do you want to do? Yeah. <laughs> All the while, some proportion Sorry. of them are listening, thinking, uh, guys, Yeah, guys. actually. And, and so mm. if you can open up a line of communication, you know, the tennis for yes and the house for no, and you can ask them questions, you can say, are you happy? And actually, you know, you get the tennis response. You get yes from most of them, probably because they're euphoric to actually be heard at last. Yeah. And it's not straightforward. It takes about 30 seconds to answer each question. It's a lot of data you have to take and analyse to, oh, to get it. A bit boring. <laughs> but, you know, I'll take that over never being heard again. Is this contentious, this stuff? How did Dr. Adrian's peers respond? Well, of course there were people who said, nah. And it depends on the data that they got. But when they did some of the electroencephalography stuff people reanalyzed the data and said no we can't see what you say you're seeing in there but in the end you know they've now done it on you know so they, they did a sample he was working with Stephen Lorries at uh, Liège in Belgium and they did 54 patients mm -hmm. and got responses from five of them uh, they did um, it's not quite the 20% is it it's not quite the 20%. But, you know, they're honing their techniques. It depends on, you know, which sort of brain scanning you're using and whatever else. So I think it was controversial. But I think once you've got people coming back and saying, yes, I was in that vegetative state and I've come out of it, and actually it was amazing to be found, I yeah. think that sort of tells you that we are onto something at least here. Yeah, that's pretty compelling evidence, isn't it? Yeah. If someone's telling it. <laughs> it was amazing. <laughs> the next story of what happened to this young man, it's a living nightmare that's difficult to imagine. A young man locked inside his own body for more than a decade after doctors said he was in a vegetative state. What doctor and his, and his parents didn't know was that Martin Pistorius was aware of everything that was going on around him. He just, he couldn't move, he couldn't communicate, he couldn't communicate his thoughts. The actual methods of measuring brain activity, they're complicated, aren't they? In the sense that you can read some stuff into an fMRI that is misleading. <laughs> like this, and we've talked about the old salmon before, yeah, I know. We have. But the salmon is a good example. Is it you get a dead salmon and you can measure its brain activity? Exactly. So people have taken this dead salmon experiment. It, you hook it up in an fMRI scanner and you show it various images and you ask it what it thinks. Yeah. And it doesn't tell you anything. But actually, what you find is in your fMRI scan, you've got different parts of the salmon's brain lighting up at different times. And it's important to understand that fMRI is about comparative blood flow. So, yeah. so it's about spotting differences between different areas. And if you don't do your statistics right and you don't do the proper analysis, then yes, you will get a dead salmon giving you answers effectively through its brain activity. But 
if you do the stats properly, that goes away. It's mathematically complicated, yeah, effectively, the yeah. interpretation of the results. Yeah. So you, you have to be careful about it. And actually, at the time they did this study, the proper procedures weren't being done by like something like 30% of people doing these fMRI studies. And since they did the dead salmon thing, it's become so famous that actually that's dropped to below 10% now. So most people are, are realising that there's a horrific error to be made here if you're not careful. Yeah, so the dead salmon has actually taught us something. <laughs> it has, yeah. Slightly playing devil's advocate. Is there another explanation for these results that we might be missing? Almost like a reflex action. Well, one of the criticisms that's been levelled at him is that all he's doing is knee-jerking to the words that you said. Like the last mm. thing you say in the sentence, it's just yeah, a knee-jerk like knee reaction. reaction to yeah. tennis. Yeah, exactly. Tennis. And the, and the, and the brain just sort yeah, of like... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but they've changed the wording, they've changed the way they structure these conversations. Mm -hmm. So they've they've eliminated that. And I mean, this is a job of scientists, obviously, to be sceptical and to ask these difficult questions. But it does seem like this research is surviving those kinds of investigations and definitely worth pursuing. When it comes to asking patients questions, our first priority is to try and make them as, as comfortable as possible. So, for example, we'll, we'll ask them if they're in pain or uh, if they still enjoy watching football on TV or, you know, or whatever it is that they generally get exposed to a lot. But we also ask them questions to try and understand a bit more about what it's like to be them and what they can and can't do. So, for example, we've asked patients if they know about certain events that have occurred since they had their accident. And in that way, we've been able to show that Many of these patients uh, have a good sense of the passage of time. They know that what year it is. They know who they are. They'll often be able to report that other members of their family have, have had children, for example, that they, they, in a way, shouldn't know about if they truly were in a vegetative state. But they do know about them because they've, they've witnessed those people visiting and so on and so forth. We've also asked patients a little bit about their quality of life. and. This also is from, from other people working in this area, is that this is perhaps not the nightmare scenario that we all think it is. Now, I, I'm not for a minute suggesting that you know the, these patients are, are happy, but uh, a study last year of patients in locked-in syndrome, a, la a large group of patients, showed that many of them found satisfaction in their lives. And in fact, very few wanted to die. And I think that's a very important point because everybody listening to this will, at some point in their life, I'm sure, have said, if I ever end up in that situation, you know, pull the plug. And what we are trying to do here is to, to make sure that that is never done in error. The best way to do that is to try and, as best we can, return decision-making to the patient themselves. So effectively, it's about giving a level of autonomy back to yeah. those patients that can handle it, I yeah. have some source of consciousness, and therefore they would have the same rights as anyone else and yeah. get, to, get to make their own decisions. On yeah. Stuff. I mean, on a really basic level, it's like, you know, which TV channel do you want to be watching? And there was one guy who said, you know, he really likes the ice hockey. He's really yeah. pleased to have been allowed to watch the ice hockey, presumably in peace. <laughs> yeah, 2.15, BBC One, <laughs> I love that quiz show, Impossible. That sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Nobody no, said it. that yet, actually. Yet, yet. <laughs> so the, the next level, of course, is giving them control over decisions about their care mm. and about whether they want to be... I guess, given more pain medication, for instance, are you in pain is a good question to ask. Mm. You can answer yes or no. That The question nobody asks them, because we don't know how to respond to it, is, do you want to die? Mm. So Adrian Owen sort of says, that's a difficult question, isn't it? Because if they say yes, you're not actually allowed to just kill them. 
Mm. Uh, whereas if they were in a vegetative state and uncommunicative, you would. then you could do that, yeah. ironically. Does that mean we just need a new kind of ethical, legal framework then? You say just as if that's kind no, of... No, really no, no, yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you just knock that up. <laughs> Half a day. We'll have that by Tuesday. <laughs> <laughs> but that's what's required, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, so we have a whole raft of new ethical dilemmas effectively mm. thrown up by this research. And the research is just good news, as far as I can see. People slip into comas, they slip into a vegetative state. It's not the end of everything. There is hope for communication. There is reason to keep trying with them and everything else. Uh, but it does mean that we've got to do some more thinking. And, and these are difficult questions. And it's up to Catherine. She's the one who'd have to face whatever risks there might be. So I support whatever decision she makes. Can I ask you something? Please. If he wasn't like this... If he was conscious, do you think that he would tell you where she is? There's always a chance of a confession, yeah. Look, I feel for this girl, I do. But Starger may no longer know the truth. For severe schizophrenics, there's no discerning between fantasy and reality. Is it possible? If he came to trust me, yes. But it takes months to earn that kind of trust. And so, in The Cell... Obviously, J-Lo goes into the serial killer's head and yeah. is sort of within... I don't really know how you would describe the landscape. I guess it's his dream landscape or like his... his unconscious. His unconscious. Yeah. And so we are a million miles from doing that. Yeah. But we are getting slightly better at figuring out ways of communicating with the person. Yeah, and not just communicating as well. So Stephen Lawrence has this technology where they use transcranial direct current stimulation. Oh, yeah. And they have woken people up for limited amounts of time. So people have been in a vegetative state. They have this kind of zap to their brain. And for a while, and I think the maximum so far is a week, they sort of come much more to the surface and much more able to communicate wow. and respond and move their limbs and things like that. And they're being really careful with this. You know, they don't know whether if you increase the current, you fry their brain or you might do something terrible to them. They don't know whether long term it will produce more damage, although it's kind of hard to see yeah. the, the downsides of it. I think if I'm in it, I'm just like, zap me. Yeah, <laughs> zap yeah. me, guys. I'll take it. <laughs> tennis, tennis. Turn it up. <laughs> and uh, so so there is hope for all these things to not only communicate, but actually maybe change the brain state. So yeah, we're not sort of reading people's thoughts. We're not going into their subconscious, like in the cell, but we are able to do a direct communication with the brain when there's no other means of getting at it. So does this have a knock-on effect to other areas of medicine as well? So I think that some anaesthetists are getting quite excited about it because they've got a bit of a problem in that they put people under for an operation yeah, and then they monitor brain signals and sort of vital signs and everything, but they never actually know whether somebody really is unconscious and unable to feel pain. And it turns out that about, in the US, the figures I've seen, twenty to 40,000 people a year report some awareness during operations. <laughs> I mean, which is sort of less than 0.1%. It's not a big proportion. Still. So if you're going into hospital for an operation this week, you know, don't worry about it. It probably won't happen to you. But yeah, <laughs> the trouble is, of those people, 70% come out with post-traumatic stress disorder and depression and phobias and everything because of the experience of being under and being operated on and you know it. But if you could have like a headset or something based on this technology where you can ask questions, can you hear me? You know, are you aware of what's going on around you? Then you could avoid that. You could actually test whether people are properly under or not. So there's a spin-off that we might all benefit from. 
So, yeah, effectively, figuring out a way of communicating with someone when they are under. Yeah. To check that they're under check enough. That, yeah. It sounds like the worst nightmare scenario, doesn't it? Being operated on while you're actually feeling the pain. Yes, not for me. Yeah. Okay, so to summarise, the answer to our question, can we communicate with someone in a coma or vegetative state, is yes. I would say with, yes. With some of them. Yeah. And maybe as technology develops, with more of them. Unless they're the ones who just wouldn't be able to do it if they were in a waking state. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you're not really good at imagining, mm. don't go don't, into a don't coma. Don't go into a coma. No. That's the take home, isn't yeah, it? it? Yes. Is. Yeah. <laughs> this is news you can use, mate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's not often we give you good, solid, practical advice. <laughs> but it's a pleasure to do so on this occasion. <laughs> Next week, we're going to be discussing nuclear war when we broach Dr. Strangelove. Assuming next week happens. Fingers crossed. Yeah. Science-ish is a Radio Wolfgang production presented by me, Rick Edwards, and my assistant, Dr. Michael Brooks. The producers were Cormac McAuliffe and L. Scott. Sound designed by Ivor Slayer-Manley. Special thanks to Dr. Adrian Owen. If you like the show, please subscribe and rate and review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at science underscore ish or check out our website, scienceish.org. Would they be able to listen to this? Yeah. But they're probably not, though, are they? (laughs) And today we're going to play you the podcast, Science Ish. We'll see if you respond. No! (laughs)